You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. In order to catch all of the context again, we're going to read the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 14 and 15 today. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with with fragments, which were left, fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have exalted in praise to you, and now our desire is to exalt in your word. And we pray that through exalting in your word that we may exalt your name and your purposes and advance your kingdom. We thank you for your word, which is precious to us, and may we hear in the pages of Scripture your voice to your people. Encourage us and exhort us and rebuke us where necessary. And we pray that you would instruct us in your way and in your truth by your Spirit, through your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every year about this time, I have the joy, and I say joy in every sense of the word, and the privilege of being able to go out to Kokolala Lake Bible Camp and be part of training the staff for the year of camp that is ahead of them. We just did this a couple of weeks ago. I will continue to do that as long as they ask me to come and allow me to come. There's somewhat of a of an irony in it because I get to stand in the very building in which I trusted Christ, and I get to be part of training the staff in that building. And my part of the training is I'm only there for a, a couple hours out of the whole thing, but I'm teaching the staff on how to share their faith, how to do evangelism, how to use the law to bring about the knowledge of sin so that kids will come to Christ with the right motives. And it's a joy for me because not only do I get to stand in the same building, but the way it's all set up, I actually get to stand almost just within a couple feet of the very location that I was sitting as a kid there when God regenerated my heart. Sitting in that camp, I remember the scene. I remember everything just as clear as if it was yesterday. I don't know the day that it happened. Only God knows the day. The camp doesn't even know the day. I didn't write down the day. I wish I had. But I remember I was a teenager, and I remember right where I was sitting, and I get to stand right where I was born again and teach other kids how to communicate the gospel. That is, every year I look forward to that. It thrills my heart to do it. 
And one of the things that I tell the campers, the counselors while we are there, is that they need to make sure that all summer long they are communicating the right gospel to the children so that the children come to Christ with the right motives. We want children to come to Christ with the right motives for coming to Christ. There are all kinds of illegitimate reasons to give people to come to Christ. And if you listen to most gospel presentations, they are filled with all kinds of illegitimate motives for coming to Christ. Let me give you an analogy or an illustration, and this is going to be somewhat um, maybe ludicrous. If you go to a camp full of 9- and 10-year-old kids, and you tell them that if they come forward and ask Jesus to be their Savior, that Jesus will provide for them lollipops for life. Do you think that you will get a lot of decisions for Christ in a group of 9- and 10-year-old kids if you're telling them that Jesus will give them little balls of sugar on a stick for the rest of their lives? You can get all kinds of decisions for Christ. They will come forward by the dozens They will sign whatever card they want to sign, check whatever box they need to check, pray whatever prayer they need to pray, as long as they can get the lollipops for life that you promised them. And though you might come back and say, we had a hundred kids trust Jesus this last week, the question would be, what did they trust Him for? Did they trust Him for forgiveness of sins, or did they trust Him for lollipops for life? Which one is it? If they trust Jesus for lollipops for life, then I ask you, have they truly trusted Christ and been born again? Have they? They have not. And they remain in their sin, and that is tragic. Now you say, Jim, no churches today offer lollipops for life, for coming to Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Lollipop. It's a lollipop for adult. The kids will come forward for the sugar ball on the stick. Adults come forward for the wonderful plan. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or come to Jesus and He will give you prosperity and peace and health and love and happiness and joy and contentment like you have never known. It's a lollipop. It's a lollipop for adults, but it's a lollipop nonetheless. Adults don't want sugar on a stick. We don't want that, but what do we want? We want the wonderful plan. We want the peace and the prosperity. We want the the health and the wealth that is promised. We want to know that if we come to Jesus, everything will be better. Come to Christ, and if since coming to Christ, I have never known such peace and joy. My kids are better. My job is better. My health is better. Things are going better. My job, my business could not be going any better. My wife is finally obedient to me. I have never had any joy or peace like the joy and peace that comes since I trusted Jesus. That's lollipops for adults is all that is. And you can offer to people a thousand illegitimate motives for coming to Christ. You can offer them a thousand incentives, none of which are biblical, and when they come, you will find that they leave just as lost as when they came because they are coming to Jesus for something other than what He offers and they are trusting Him for something other than which He offers and they are coming to Him on their terms and not His terms. And when that happens, when people come with the wrong motives for the wrong reason to receive the wrong thing, they get the wrong Jesus. And what ends up happening in most gospel presentations, if you listen to it, it is a presentation which offers lollipops for life. It's adult lollipops, but it's lollipops for life to people who will come 
and trust Christ. That is one of the greatest deceptions of our age. It is the notion that says that when people come to Jesus, they can come to Jesus and He will meet their every need and match their every desire and fulfill their every dream and give them their every goal and their every expectation and whatever their covetous heart can gin up, Jesus will be there like a cosmic bellhop to meet that need, whatever it may be. That is one of the greatest deceptions of our age. And because of it, we are filling eternity with people who on Judgment Day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Was I not? I did this. I went forward. I received the wonderful plan. I received the offer that you gave. What they're going to find on Judgment Day is that they accepted the wrong offer because the offer was not the biblical offer. It was not the biblical gospel. It's the deception of our age. And friends, it's the deception really of every age. If you're familiar with church history, then you know that what we are facing today is nothing different than has been faced all through church history. And you can always go back even to John chapter 6 and see that the people came to Jesus for the wrong motives to get the wrong thing to receive him on their terms and not his. And that's the reaction we see in verses 14 and 15. This reaction of the crowd in verse 14 and 15 follows the feeding of the 5,000, which we remember from last week was actually a feeding of probably something closer to 15 or 20,000 people, counting women and children. It was the multiplying of the bread and fish to meet the hungry hunger, the physical needs of the multitude. After Jesus did that and multiplied the five little pancake-sized pieces of bread and the two little minnow-sized fish that the boy brought him, and he fed the multitude as much as they wanted. They were filled. They took up the baskets full of fragments. And now in verse 15, or 14 and 15, we get the response of the multitude. And it's worth us slowing down and trying to get into the mindset of the multitude because later on in chapter 6, if we understand the mindset of the multitude, then we will understand why it is that Jesus says the things that he does, which are so offensive to the multitude. And if you don't understand what's going on in the head of the crowd, you'll never understand what was going on in the mind of Jesus when he drives the multitude away from him with his hard words. So we want to take some time, camp on this response in verses 14 and 15, and get into the mind of the people and understand what it is that they were expecting of him. Because in verse 14 and 15, we get a picture or view of the crowd's expectation, what the crowd was anticipating, what the crowd was wanting, and really the type of faith that the crowd had. Was it a genuine faith that came to him because of him? and because of what He truly offered, or did they miss the point of the miracle and come to Him for something else? And I would submit to you that they were coming to Him for something else. It was something that He was not offering to them, but it was something that they wanted to take from Him. Let's read verses 14 and 15 again, and then we'll jump into it. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Then the people saw the sign. They said, truly, this is the prophet. What prophet are they talking about? They recognized that Jesus was the prophet, not a prophet. The, the indefinite and definite article is significant there. They, they're calling him the prophet and not a prophet. Now, they recognized that John the Baptist was a prophet because of what John did and how he John preached and how John lived. They saw him as a prophet But they also asked, you remember back in chapter 1, they asked John, are you the prophet? Who was this the prophet? What prophet are they talking about? They might recognize Jesus as a prophet, but here they seem to stumble onto the truth that he is the prophet. And the prophet that they're talking about, that they rightly identify Jesus as, is the one mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 
verse 15. I'm going to read the passage to you. This was a passage where Moses predicted, or God predicted through Moses, that he was going to send a prophet that was like Moses to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is, this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. That's the prophet being described. In John chapter 6, the multitudes identified Jesus as the prophet, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. The promise of Deuteronomy 18 was that God, in response to the request of the people that they no more see the fire or hear the voice of God, God said, okay, I will raise up eventually somebody from among their brethren, a prophet. He will be the prophet. He will be like Moses. And he shall speak to the people, and the people will listen to him. And so all through, since the time of Moses, all the Jews looked forward to the coming of the prophet. When would he come? Most people expected that the prophet would be different from the Messiah, that they would be two different people. But you can see from the reaction of the people in John 16, verse 15, that some, maybe at least in Galilee, these Jews and this multitude, were willing to accept the idea that he would be the prophet and the coming messianic king. And they identified them maybe both as the same person. And they saw Jesus as the prophet, and they said if he is the prophet, perhaps he is also the king. Now I ask myself, what was it about the feeding of the 5,000 and this miracle in John 6? What was it about that miracle that made them think to themselves, he must be the prophet? What had Jesus done that identified him in the minds of the people as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18? What had Jesus provided for them? Bread. Where had he provided bread? in the wilderness, out in a desolate place with nobody around. So here was a gathering, a large assembly of God's people. Here was a man who was a prophet who provided bread out of heaven for people in the wilderness. Who would that remind them of? That would remind them of Moses, who, as the leader of God's people in a desolate place, out in the desert, provided food from heaven, bread from heaven, from God. So the people have already identified Jesus and Moses and this similarity between them that both of them provided food for God's people out in a desolate place. And you can see that that's in their head in verse chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And there they're asking Jesus for another sign and suggesting to him that he provide manna out of heaven just as Moses had. So they saw Jesus provide bread out of heaven. In their minds they thought Moses provided bread out of heaven. Moses was our deliverer king as a, in the wilderness. Jesus could be our deliverer king in the wilderness. He must be just like Moses. God promised he would raise up a prophet like Moses. Jesus is done like Moses. Both of them are prophets. We recognize them as being similar. So they identified him as the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now I ask you, were the people right? Was Jesus that prophet of Deuteronomy 18? Yes, he was. He was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. And so they had that right. They rightly identified him as the fulfillment of that passage. Where they erred was in their application of that truth. Jesus was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He was the fulfillment of that. But the people in saying that then tried to make him king. 
Now, here's where they messed up in their application of it. I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 18 again, the exact same words, but I'm going to emphasize something this time, and I want you to listen for the emphasis. Here's that prophecy again. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Did you hear that? The people identified Jesus as the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, but did they listen to him? No, they didn't. The irony is striking. Look at John 6, verse 41. This is the response of the people when Jesus was speaking to them. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, On the bread of life, come down out of heaven. Oh, bread of life, come down out of heaven. Who does this guy think he is? Starting to grumble amongst the crowd. They're not even prepared to listen to that. Look at verse 60 of John chapter 6. Verse 60, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? They identified him as the prophet to whom they must listen, but then at the end they said, well, I can listen to this. That's ironic, isn't it? Can you imagine them sitting amongst the crowd? Hey, do you think he might be the prophet? What prophet are you speaking of? You know, the prophet that God said we must listen to. That when he shows up, he will speak God's word, God will put his word on his lips, and God will require the blood from any man who does not listen to that prophet. You think he's the one? Yeah, I think he's the one. Let's listen to what he has to say. They listen to what he has to say and say, no. No, thanks. They're not interested in listening to him later on in John chapter 6, but they rightly identify him as the one that they must listen to at risk of being held accountable and being judged because they would not listen to him. Listen, folks, people do the same thing today. Even Christians do the same thing today when they call him Lord, Lord, and they do not obey him. That is the exact same mentality of the crowd. He's the one we must obey. That's what they're saying with their mouth. But then they say, we're not interested in obeying that's the attitude of the crowd. Lord, Lord, but I will not obey you. And Jesus said in John, uh, Luke 6, I think it's verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? The further misapplication of the truth you see in verse 15 when they try to make him king. Look at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke... None of those three record this response of the crowd that they tried to make him king. All three of those Gospels record this miracle, and all three of those Gospels record the things that happened after this miracle, but none of them mention the desire and intention of the crowd to make him king. Why does John record that and not Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John records that in order to show us what was going on in the minds of the people and why it is that Matthew and Mark both record that Jesus dispersed the crowd and then left away and went away to pray. You see, verse, between verse 14 and 15, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus took his, sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. He then dispersed the crowd, and then he departed and went up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus did three things. The people want to make him king. He knows their heart. He is perceiving that they are willing to make him king and take him by force. Can you imagine such a thing? Coming to the, <laughs> to, coming to the Son of God and seizing upon him and taking him by force to make him king. Jesus, knowing that that was in their heart, said to his disciples, go back across the Sea of Galilee, get in the boats and leave. 
which they do. Then Jesus disperses the crowd. Now, why did he make the disciples leave? None of the Gospels say why it was, what was in the mind of Jesus when he made the disciples leave. But if I were in that position, I would make my disciples leave simply because I would not want them catching on to the sentiment of the crowd. Bad company corrupts good morals. And the last thing he needs is the 12 men closest to him jumping on that bandwagon to seize him by force and take him to Jerusalem and make him king. So he sends the disciples away, he disperses the crowd, and then he leaves and goes up by himself on a mountain. Now that would cool all of the would-be kingmaker sentiments to make him king and take him by force. And he did all of that, perceiving that they were intending to make him king. He sent them away, dispersed the crowd, and got out of there, and went up by himself to be alone. And now they've got nobody to make king, because he's essentially left. And he's by himself, and the crowd is then takes off, and they have to leave. Verse 15 at the end of it says that he withdrew by himself to a mountain to pray. And that was probably the same mountain that he went on up, up onto with his disciples at the beginning of John chapter 6. Now what's behind their desire to make him king? The Jews were fiercely nationalistic. And the multitude that was there trying to make him king were fiercely nationalistic. At the moment, they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Rome took all of their money in taxes and spent it on what the Jews would consider morally reprehensible projects. Furthermore, they controlled the life of the Jews and took their land and controlled their land and told them what they could do and what they couldn't do, and they occupied them. Now, I know it is very difficult for you to imagine what it is like to live under such a government that takes your money and spends it on morally reprehensible projects, but just imagine, if you will, this national, nationalistic sentiment of the Jews. They hated nobody more than they hated Rome. Nobody. They hated the Romans. And at this time in Jewish history, at this period, their messianic expectations were at an all-time fever pitch. People were, people were rising up and claiming to be the Messiah by the dozens in the first century. Almost every Tom, Dick, and Harry decided he was going to be the Messiah and lead a revolt. And there was over 70 of them led within the first 150 years after the, uh, from zero onto 150. All of these messianic leaders. So everybody was expecting this. And what were the Jews expecting of their Messiah? They were expecting their king to show up, to gather a following of people, and to lead a revolt against Rome, to overthrow Rome. They would start in Jerusalem. What they were expecting was that this Messiah would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. They would overthrow the Roman leadership in Jerusalem. And and then they would march toward Rome. And eventually they would take over everything. So now they have found their man. Because in Jesus, they have seen the answer to all of their needs. What other type of Messiah could you possibly want than one that could feed the multitudes like this? They wanted to be out from under the thumb of Rome and the oppression of of Rome. They felt the bondage to Rome. They felt the shackles of Rome. But did Jesus come to deliver them from Rome? No, no, he came to deliver them from their sin. But did they want freedom from their sin? See, that they didn't want. That they didn't want. And listen, sin's tyranny is worse than Rome ever thought of being. But here's the thing about sin. When sin shackles are on us, they don't rattle, so we don't notice them. We can't even see them, really. And they wear rather comfortably around our wrists because they're very soft. Sin has soft shackles. And we are just as much in bondage to sin when we sin as Rome ever hoped to make the Jews in bondage to Rome. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews, You shall know the truth. If you abide my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What was he speaking of? Freedom from sin. Because the Jews immediately said, No, 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 no. We're children of Abraham, and we 
have never been in bondage to anyone. You kidding me? They couldn't name a world power within a thousand miles that they had not been in bondage to at some point. They had been in bondage to everyone. Almost from the time they came out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, they had been in bondage to one power after another. But the religious leaders said, we've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus said, now talking about physical bondage, he didn't even address that. He said, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. He who sins is a slave of sin. And you are slaves of sin. And that's what every sinner is. But does a sinner want to be free from this bondage to sin? No, 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 no. We feel the oppression of a government. We feel the oppression of our boss. We feel the oppression of other people. But we never feel the oppression of sin and the tyranny of sin. And Jesus came to deliver them from sin. And that they did not want because men love darkness rather than light. And they do not come to the light. They hate the light. And they run toward the darkness. And they don't want to be set free from sin. It's the last thing that an unbeliever wants. An unbeliever who is a slave to sin looks at being a slave to righteousness and it is reprehensible to him. Who wants to be a slave to righteousness? And the unbeliever thinks he's free, believes he's free, acts as if he's free, but he's really under the tyranny of sin. But that's not the type of deliverance that they wanted, not one from sin. They wanted deliverance from Rome. And here they saw somebody who, if they were able to take him and seize him by force and take him to Jerusalem, he would be able to put together an army toot sweet. That would be quick and easy, wouldn't it? All he had to do is go into the temple and do a miracle like the one that he had just done right there on the mountainside, right? Multiply bread and fish in the temple. And with all the Jews from all over the then known world, from every nation inside the temple seeing that, he would have a, a following and a gathering in no time. 5,000 people or 20,000 people were ready to follow him and ready to risk life and limb to follow him in order to make him king and to be delivered from Rome. So if he went to Jerusalem and performed that miracle, and if he did it inside the temple instead of cleansing the temple, that just always offended people. Don't cleanse the temple this time. Multiply bread and fish, and we'll have quite a following. And what other, what better military leader could you possibly ask for than one that can feed the army all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, and one that can heal all of your injured, and heal the sick, and raise the dead, and fabricate food out of nothing, and fabricate weapons out of nothing? That's an invincible army. And that's exactly what the people are thinking. This is our chance for hope and change. We can have a lamb chop in every pot, and a camel in every garage, this is going to be the ultimate social welfare state. Every, all of our expectations, all of our needs, everything we want met for us by Him. This is the bee's knees. There's nothing better than this. Let's go get Him. And we'll march to Jerusalem, and we'll have our way. And we'll get from Him what we want. Now you understand the motives of the crowd? Are they wanting deliverance from sin, which is what He's offering? That's not what they want. They want an ultimate welfare state. But that's not what Jesus came to provide. That's not, Jesus, not what Jesus came to offer. What Jesus came to offer was forgiveness from sins and deliverance for sins, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted him to provide for their needs, their expectations, match their dreams, meet all of their wants and desires, give them everything that their covetous heart desired. And they were willing to embrace him if he would provide that for him, for them but they were not willing to embrace him as he presented himself to them, and it does later on in chapter 6. So now I ask you, did Jesus miss it? Was this his opportunity? He could have had the kingdoms of the world, right? From an earthly perspective, from man's perspective, this is, this is your chance. This same multitude, one year later at the very next Passover, is going to be calling for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him. That's what they're going to be asking a year later. And here he is, has the opportunity to gather a crowd, go to Jerusalem, gather a bigger crowd. He could have all the nations. 
But that wasn't the work of the Father. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to give himself as a ransom for many. He came to offer his life for the life of the nations, his flesh for the life of the world. We find out later on in John chapter 6, they thought that the message of the miracle was that he could meet all of their physical needs. And the message of the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, was that he is the bread of life come down from heaven to offer his flesh for the life of the nations, and he can meet all their spiritual needs. And he is a deliverer, not from earthly powers, but a deliverer from uh, sin's bondage. And they totally missed it. They totally missed that point. Jesus didn't miss the plan of God. He knew what it was, and he left and departed from the crowd so that they would not attempt to make him king by force. Now, here's the main lesson that you and I learn from the response of the crowd. Their faith is not a legitimate faith. Don't be confused for a moment that all these people are following Jesus and this is, this is a genuine saving faith and that all these people are saved and later on they decide not to be saved. That's not it at all. All of these people have come to Jesus to fulfill their own needs and their own wants and their own expectations. They have come to him on their terms to get what they want and desire. That's not genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith comes to Christ on his terms to get what he offers. And he does not offer the meeting of all of our physical needs. He offers the meeting of all of our spiritual needs and deliverance from sin. But you can't come to Christ on your terms because if you try, you will miss him. And he will withdraw from you just as he withdrew from the crowd. Do you realize there is a whole philosophy of church ministry today in evangelical churches in the Western world that seeks to offer a Jesus who will meet every last covetous desire of all of men's wicked hearts. And people come to that offer with the expectation that that Jesus is going to provide that, and they end up missing the true Jesus. It's a seeker-sensitive movement. We mention it from time to time as it's applicable in Scripture, but you would think that the evangelical leadership of today that promotes such nonsense got their, got their talking points right out of John chapter 6. Jesus was a fool in their eyes because he didn't offer to them what met their needs. Instead, he offered them something opposite of that. The seeker-sensitive movement is so anti-biblical, so utterly devoid of scriptural reference, it's so opposite from a biblical philosophy of ministry that it is amazing to me that any Christians gobble that up. It is the single greatest plague upon our nation, and it has been a total train wreck, a total failure. Why is it a total failure? Because people come to Christ for something other than he offers. Let me give you an illustration. Justin Peters, who was here last spring, and if you missed his seminar here, I'm too bad for you, because it was it was excellent. Um, after he was here last spring, he was traveling down through the south, and he stopped in at Joel Osteen's church in Lakewood, Texas, the largest church in all of America. Health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, no sin, no wrath, no righteousness, no repentance, none of that. Just come to Jesus for all the benefits. And uh, I recently had a chance to stop and, and talk with Justin, and he shared this story with me. He visited Joel Osteen's church, and he was there for a service. And uh, he took a picture, and he texted it to me. And it was a picture of this massive, of course, basketball coliseum with, I don't know, a million people or however it will fit in that thing. It's huge. 70,000 people that are there on a given Sunday. He took a picture and texted me that, and he said, Joel Osteen's church. And it was right between adult Sunday school class and our church that I got that. So I took a picture of our sanctuary with like 10 people in it, and I said, Kootenai Community Church. I sent that back to him. He appreciated that. So he was there that morning, and everybody who is new, who's there for the first time, gets the chance to meet Joel Osteen personally. So you can go off into a side room, and, and Joel and his um, co-pastor, Victoria, sit down behind the table, and they sign books and talk to the newcomers, and they go through the line. So Justin was doing that, and as he walked through, Justin then, so I love this brother, 
confronted Joel Osteen with the gospel. And he said to Joel Osteen, why is it that you do not present sin and righteousness and the message of judgment to come when you present Jesus? Why do you stray away from and avoid the subject of the wrath of God? You have to talk about hell and the law if you're going to accurately present the gospel. And Joel Osteen's response to him was, well, we choose not to talk about those things. We want to be positive and encouraging and uplifting and and really want to just have a positive message for people. And Justin said, but you cannot accurately and faithfully proclaim the gospel if you are not willing to tell people the bad news, that there is a God who is angry with them because of their sin and will send them to hell justly if they do not repent and believe the gospel. You must present that if you're going to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And and jo, uh, Justin, of course, is, is just soft-spoken, and you know how gentle he is. I'm being way more aggressive than Justin was. But Joel Osteen's response to that was this. Last year, we saw 250,000 people come to Jesus as a result of our ministry. So our message seems to be working pretty good for us. And that was it. And Justin was ushered off, and the next guy was ushered in front of him. 250,000 people came to what? Came to what? Which Jesus? And for what? Did they come for forgiveness of sins? They couldn't have because they didn't hear about sin. They didn't hear about judgment. They didn't hear about the offer of forgiveness. They didn't understand how it was that forgiveness is offered. Friends, verse 15 of John 6 is tragic. Tragic. They came to him for something other than he was offering, and they missed him, and they missed his offer. One commentator on John 6 writes this, and with this I close. He said, he who was already king has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. And thus they fail to get the king they want and also lose the kingdom that he offers. This multitude walked away without a king and without the kingdom because they wanted Jesus on his terms. May you and I be faithful in proclaiming the gospel to make sure that we give people the right motive for coming to Christ. It is for forgiveness which he offers. He does not promise anything else. Other things may come, but forgiveness is what we need. Forgiveness is what he offers, and forgiveness is what we must proclaim through the cross. Let's pray. Father, you have been so gracious to give us your Son to make atonement on the cross, a once-for-all sacrifice sufficient to cleanse us from our sin. We need nothing else. We need no other argument. We need no other plea. We need nothing else but that Jesus Christ died for us, for me. Thank you for that sacrifice for sin, and thank you, Father, that you have called us to yourself and given us the right reason to come to Christ. Thank you for the genuineness of our salvation and for causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord from the dead, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.